0: Namo tasa bhagavato arahato sammasambuddhasa. Namo tasa bhagavato arahato sammasambuddhasa. Namo tasa bhagavato arahato sammasambuddhasa. Homage to the Buddha, the blessed, noble, and fully self-enlightened one. Um, I thought this evening just to um, let the mind wander a bit, really, about um, this whole business of goodwill, um, since it's Christmas. Um, So this was, if you remember, the the message over the manger, wasn't it? Goodwill to all all men, meaning, of course, all humans. And uh, I'm sure you noticed my little sign on the gate... (laughs) I've extended it to all beings. <laughs> in the hope it might affect the, uh, the local uh, farmer. So, <laughs> so you can hear that little dog. He's, he keeps it in a, in a cage with a, a concrete base and it's obviously quite unhappy, but what can you do? So um, goodwill for me really translates the word metta although I'm sure you've seen it translated as uh, loving-kindness, which gives it its affective uh, its value, you know, its emotional value. Uh, but uh, we have to link that, really, with uh, the Buddha's teaching about karma. And karma is um, action. I'm using the word technically now, not, not your comeuppance. You know, you, you get your karma. Uh, but more in the sense of just an action. And an action is driven by... The action is, is, is a point where the will comes in. And, uh, <clears throat> and then, with the will, you have the action, and the action, of course, produces the beginning of a conditioning, or reinforces a present conditioning, and that's your bhava, that's your becoming. See? And um, really, it's just looking at um, the position that the Buddha puts this whole business of karma into his teachings. Um, <clears throat> when, he was, uh, when he went through that liberation process, he came out with what's known as the uh, the three knowledges, the three great understandings he had. The first one was a realization that he was completely purified of all these negative states. Uh, later in his victory verse, he says that he attained this <clears throat> unconditioned uh, consciousness, asankhita But the other two... <clears throat> are related to how he got there. And the first is he saw all his past lives and saw how he arrived at this particular place. And then he was able to perceive beings moving from one realm to another, uh, driven by the same force, by the same karmic force, by their by their will. And um, what was then a just a personal law became a universal law for him. And from that, over time, you know, he develops dependent origination, which is the whole psychology of how we uh, create our conditionings. Uh, but also, um, he points to this, um, the whole business of um, ethics. So, <coughs> ethics in its broadest meaning is basically our relationship, our relationship to, um, to each other as human beings, of course. Uh, to the animal world, uh, to the world of nature, to the mineral world, to use an old medieval way of looking at things. So even rocks and stuff like that we have a relationship with. Um, it might not be a very uh, deeply affectionate one, but we, <laughs> but we have a relationship with, with the physicality of nature. And... Um, in the Noble Eightfold Path, you see, this, this comes into play because after we've had some insights, this has to translate itself into right attitude. And these attitudes, he names three of them within the, within, um, the Eightfold Path of uh, selfishness to generosity, hatred towards love, and cruelty towards compassion. But you can take any negativity and you can state its opposite as where we're moving towards. See, And, of course, that's a change in relationship. And that's what we're talking about, a relationship. And this then expresses itself in right speech, right action, and right livelihood. See? So, um, this ethics um, is most keenly expressed, you might say, in its little detail in in the Vinaya for the monks, for the the monastic life, the monks and nuns. Because here he's trying to set up an institution, a specific institution, which is to preserve the Dharma and, of course, to help people become uh, liberated. And he sees that as extremely important. And um, it's not as though he starts from a position of, some ideal as to what the order will be. Um, he follows the normal um, customs of the time, which was basically to use whatever cloth was about to create clothing, uh, to live very simply in the forests, making your own little hut out of things, out of wooden leaves, banana leaves and stuff, and um, uh, to eat what was given in a bowl. All these things were, were set. And what it tells us is that here's the basis of a spiritual life. Um, you, you know, you, uh, we need shelter. Mm? We need clothing against the elements. So we need food to keep the body healthy. And the fourth one was medicine. And uh, <clears throat> when, you, when you look across the world and you, you see these people who don't have these basic uh, requirements what we actually what we actually understand from the Buddha's teaching is that they haven't even got the basis for spiritual practice. You see? So in other words, the Buddha's saying that in order to even begin the spiritual practice, you're, you've got to feel safe. You've got to feel safe. If your mind is concerned about where you're going to get your next piece of bread, or how you're going to clothe yourself, or your children, and so on, then it's too... Pre- you can't begin this process of of, of purifying the heart. Saint Francis had a, a similar experience when he gave up everything in a very buddhistic way and sewed together these bits of sackcloth to create his first robe. He thought to go and live with the beggars, actually live in Rome with the beggars. But he found that they were um, you know, a little immoral, <laughs> quite happy to thieve, and the language of course. Uh, and the whole thing, and it, it, it sort of—he um, had this ideal that, in fact, if you were poor, you were necessarily closer to Jesus, closer to God. But in fact, <laughs> what he found was that they were, you know, robbers and thieves. Probably one or two of them were saintly, but but generally speaking, they weren't. They weren't a crowd he wanted to mix with, and so he left them. He went off on his own back to where he where he was brought up, started again, you might say. So. Um, you know, it's a t- it, uh, uh, during, during this time, Christmas, we have this idea of, of goodwill uh, to, all, uh, to all beings. And uh, we, can, we then have this, this sort of problem about will itself, meaning some sort of choice. And there's, a, a, you know, in the West we have this idea coming really from Christianity um, of some sort of free will. Um, the ancients didn't have that sort of concept. Uh, they were, I think, more deterministic. That you know things were already determined, a fate, and that uh, choice was really um, some sort of um, trick that human beings played on themselves because they had choice, they therefore had free will, and. Uh, uh, these days, you you get these these um, different arguments between those who believe in a deterministic uh, idea of the world and those who believe that we do have some measure of free will. Um, now, in the in the Buddha's understanding, it's it's hard to to talk about uh, this um, complete free will. It it really stems from the idea of um, the Christian relationship to God, so God has, God has created us out of love, and a love which is determined by him is hardly satisfying. You know, if you, if you could create a dog and program it to love you, then <laughs> you'd have a hard time thinking that this dog really loves you. I mean, he's, he's already been pro- programmed. So the idea, the idea of free love was that a person could actually choose to uh, to love or deny God, um, and that that was the essential dignity of the human being, and the essential um, um, what would you call it um, the, central, the, the essential the um, essential um, oneness of the human being as opposed to God. You see, so he'd created something which was separate from him, and therefore had this rela- had to um, the, the human being had to find this relationship. Um, in the Buddha's teachings, it's difficult to to uh, to see this free will, because everything starts from this position of ignorance, from the position of of a, an, a, we're living under a delusion, and this delusion is driving is driving us. So its main manifestation is acquisitiveness, you know, which turns into greed and all that sort of stuff. And the reason is that um, in that essential delusion as to who we are, um, uh, there's, there's this presumed understanding that we are what we appear to be, so human beings, with the body, mind, heart, and so on and so forth. But there is always somewhere in the back of our understanding, the problem of death. All meaning to the self is in life, to the self um, that feels itself to be this psychophysical organism. Death is, death is, is uh, meaningless because my whole effort is to try and enjoy life and make life meaningful for me. And I might extend that into um, some form of relationship that gives my life meaning. So you have a a, a humanistic approach, which is that my life has meaning when I'm helping others. So uh, sometimes you'll get humanists who are just as um, self-negating, just as giving, just as generous, just as compassionate as anybody who would say they belong to a particular religion. And it gives their life meaning. Um, But even so, um, there is this underlying shall we say, um, despair, because it's all going to come to an end. And it's very difficult to, for somebody who sees death as being the end of everything that they, that they aspire to, everything that, that is meaningful in life, uh, to turn upon death and really look it straight in the face. You see? So there's always this gentle uh, pushing away of it, the denial of death. And um, what the Buddha is saying is that um, this essential delusion as to who we are uh, is, is creating this underlying uh, feeling of disjointedness, of not being actually completely um, at one with nature that we're embedded in. Because animals don't worry about that. Animals, as far as we know anyway, <laughs> you know, they're just happy to to live the moment to moment because their minds don't, doesn't, don't, don't really go beyond. They don't have that imaginative capacity to imagine their deaths. Not to say that they don't know when they're actually dying or being killed, <clears throat> but they don't have that existential fever that can descend upon us. So when you consider that we've got this underlying delusion which is trying to make sense of this life, um, then. Uh, everything is driven by that by that force so although on the surface of things when you walk into uh, tescos and you you think well uh, am i going to have you know choco biscuits or um, or or fig biscuits (laughs) i think well this is choice this is my this is a wonderful thing i have in this society of choice you know the, the governments keep going about this choice uh, but eventually, you tend to choose the one you like, <laughs> the one you've established a, re- a decent relationship with. So <laughs> so even though we have this idea of choice, actually, when we go into, when we finally make the choice, and we ask ourselves, well, why did I make that choice? We find it's actually all conditioned, that we've actually got good reasons for doing it, which is, which is another way of saying, uh, you know, I have... Uh, that it's not been a free will choice. It's not been something that it's not as though free will stands somewhere outside my conditioning, and is able to make this this um, uh, comp- this, this uh, uh, choice which has nothing to do with the conditioning uh, that that I have within my psychology. So when it comes to uh, to the path, and we're talking about uh, the way to go. It's like going for a walk isn 't it? you You set off for a walk and you already have your map. you know where you 're going to go and wherever you come to a fork in the place or where you come to a to a place where you, you don 't recognize something um, you don 't have free will you don't have you look at your map and, and you decide you 're going to go this way. Now you might make a mistake uh, <coughs> and and end up in in a, drowning in a lake, but we 'll leave that one aside presumably <laughs> presumably you can read the maps and even even if you do start walking into marshy land, you know you 've come the wrong way, so you come back on yourself, so the path isn 't um, so much one of choice but one of discernment isn 't it you see and if we discern wrongly if we if we make the wrong choices, then there are certain things that happen because of that wrong choice which and the world mirrors back to us what it is now, when we talk about Karma, remember, in in the in the sense of that which is leading us to liberation, it's never it's never something outside us. So, if, for instance, I I find myself being fired from every job that I happen to get hold of, and and I keep saying to myself, these people really don't understand me, you know, they they're absolute fools and all this sort of stuff, <laughs> then. Uh, slowly but surely it might occur to me that maybe I'm the fool and not these people I've been calling the fool all my life. Uh, But until I make that sort of uh, little bit of insight, uh, the world keeps mirroring back to me, you know, exactly what I'm doing. So, uh, but if I were to say that losing my job is my karma, then I'd be slightly off-center, you see, because my real karma is the conditioning I have inside me the conditioning which is creating this personality, these relationships, which uh, continually find me, find me dumped. If, on the other hand, you know, take, take the opposite, if, on the other hand, I find myself constantly, uh, you know, in situations which are creating happiness around me and joyfulness around me, um, then again, that's, that's mirroring back to me my relationship to the world. So uh, when we, whenever, when anything happens to us, you see um, there, there is that business going on. That doesn't mean to say that other people's karma isn't affecting us. I mean, you know, the old adage that you know, just because you're paranoid doesn't mean they're not after you. <laughs> in other words, in other words, things happen to us, but it might not be might not be specifically our fault. Is somebody else is also uh, dumping their stuff on us. And to sometimes distinguish that is very difficult. In fact, the closer the relationship is, the more difficult it is to discern that. So, um, when it comes to this uh, uh, goodwill to all beings, um, <clears throat> we're really always looking at our uh, relationships. That's what it actually means just what is our relationship. And, uh, you know, when it comes to ecology, and the world and all that, um, and we have all these deniers and all that sort of stuff. Uh, we might say to ourselves, well, even if it isn't uh, the overheating that's causing this, um, it would be better anyway to think it is, just in case it is. If <laughs> you know what I mean. <laughs> if it isn't fine, then then the world is just changing and it's in its usual patterns. But if it happens to be uh, this business of overheating, then maybe I ought to do something about it. So uh, there was, you see, a, a meditator here who, um, I, uh, who I asked about uh, ecology and whatnot. Somehow it came up in the conversations that they took two baths a day. And I said, well, isn't that, isn't that a bit ecologically sort of vandalistic, you know? <laughs> and their reply was, well, nobody else is doing anything. So you can see how... Um, in this particular case, this person was judging their particular uh, ethical relationship to the to the world by other people and excusing what they obviously thought, because of their reply, was in fact ecological vandalism. <laughs> uh, They're because nobody else is doing it. See. So uh, when it comes to ecology and and the things like that, you see our our question is to ourselves, well, what am I doing about it? See? What, am I, what is my responsibility within this particular situation I find myself in? See, So here, for instance, uh, you know, I, I've gone to all sorts of <laughs> silly extents to try and cut down the amount of fuel we use to heat water, and some of them have been slightly ridiculous. That, uh, that thing that you're using now, which I bought, which was meant to be uh, one of these super kettles that would keep water warm, um, turn out to be, I mean, that's why I've got that glove around it, that that covering, because it was just letting off heat all over the place. Uh, My latest escapade, as you've noticed over the sink, is is a hand washing thing, Uh, but actually it, uh, that water which comes straight from uh, the well, straight from the um, uh, cold water system, is perfectly drinkable, so if you ever want uh, warm water, then you know you, you can take it straight from that, and this allowed me to cut down the heat in the tank itself, which I hope you've all forgiven before. So that <laughs> is basically just hand hot. See, it's not even that, is it? It's lukewarm, and then, the <laughs> which is all you need. You only need lukewarm water. So I mean, I go back to my experience, um, you know, in the East where only the rich can have a hot shower. You just you don't have hot showers. You don't. I mean, most people still still shower at wells, and it's always cold. Always, you know. Mind you, of course, you're in the tropics, but even so. So uh, one thing that we can we can look at is is just you know um, what is our relationship to the material world? How much heat do we need? What sort of clothes are we wearing so that we don't we don't have to have the central heating on? It, you know, so high. Um, the food we eat. So you go back to your basics, you see. The food, the shelter, the clothing, you know. I mean, these days with clothes being so cheap, people have sort of quite large wardrobes, you know. I'm, I'm now sort of getting to that age group where I can be like the Monty Python <laughs> sketch which says, you know, well, in my day, <laughs> you know, we ate leather for breakfast, things like that. But... Uh, this whole, this whole explosion of uh, material goods uh, is, you know, means that people don't have a sense of um, kindness towards things. They don't, they don't treasure anything because, well, if you break a cup, you're going to buy another one. You know? but, but there was a time when you broke a cup, you've got to crack around the back of your head because <laughs> that costs cost money. So it's a case of re-establishing, really, the preciousness of things. And in the Japanese tea ceremony, which I know very little, uh, the part of the conversation is, is um, to appreciate the actual vessels that you're using, which may be cracked and very old. And there was a lovely tale told by Suzuki, who wrote Zen Beg- Mind, Beginner's Mind where when, they, when the monks go off and take water with them, they always reserve a bit to bring back, to pour back into the river that flows past the monastery. And it's that sort of relationship that I think we have to re-establish. I have a niece who works um, with, around ecology for schools. She sets up little projects for schools, a charity of such. And, uh, you know, when I was asking about that, her reply to me about people and the ecologist people don't care, people don't care. And, he, you know, and it's, it's a sadness. And we, we watched a, a, a film that was done by a French um, ecologist and there was this very, very moving scene where, I think it's in Uganda, um, where the hippos on this lake were being slaughtered uh, by poachers. And all the fish in the in the lake lived off the hippopotamus poo. That's what they did. They lived. (laughs) That's how the fish lived in the lake. And of course, as they killed these hippos, um, the fish stocks went down. And the man who was looking after it, and he saw that some uh, a little gang of hippos had disappeared he starts weeping, he starts crying because he's so, he's so distraught at the uncaring nature of these poachers
1: <coughs> and the,
0: just the inability of the government or anybody to, to stop the slaughter. So um, it's a case, really, of, of uh, you know, just thinking about our relationship to nature. When it comes to uh, animals, the animal world, you see, it's a similar a similar sort of thing. And um, it's, very, it's very difficult, really, uh, to find products which don't use, um, uh, use something from animals. Um, and the, the, here, here I think you can get very sort of tight around things. Although the Buddha uh, created, although the Buddha pointed out these rules about not harming living beings, they were never set to us as as commandments as thou shalt not. It wasn't a. It wasn't to do with that. They're training rules. See Carpenter, and uh, you can't make you can't make a um, an absolute law in in a relative universe <coughs> because uh, depending on time and place, uh, human beings, if they want to stay alive, have to eat animals. Have to eat animals. You know, I'm talking about people in deserts and uh, people in the uh, up in in the ice. Icy parts of the world, so it's not as though uh, we have to be we uh, tight, you know, particularly tight about that. But it's something that uh, we could uh, think about and just ponder and just look at, and just look at our, uh, you know, the food that we actually eat. The idea of having a vegetarian or two meals during the week uh, seems to be taking on, seems to be catching on. Um, but it's, I think one of the problems is that when we move into that moral area, we become moralistic. So again, it's, it's sort of, you know, not being too tight around these things and just working with the situation. So here, myself and, um, and Martin have to make a big decision about Christmas. <laughs> so as you know, uh, the trust has made, a, um, has made a commitment to using less animal products if we can. But careful not to name it as veganism, because then that locks you into a particular ism. And that's not really where the Buddha was at. I remember uh, talking to um, a German man who'd come to the monastery, and he was very uptight about Buddhism, you know. He he just didn't like Buddhismus. He just didn't like this word. You know, we should call it Buddha Dhamma, because as soon as you, you enter into an ism, it's as though you you um you you can't it's as though it becomes set in in concrete see so uh when we talk about um you know not uh, taking not being involved in taking life unnecessarily uh I think we always have to be careful not to get into that ism business but take each situation as it comes, so anyway, we decided that it was christmas and we'd and we would have nut roast and use eggs to bind it. So it's just just one of those things we gave in to that. Um, uh, Now, when it comes to uh, human beings, here we have a whole, uh, you know, it becomes very complicated because, uh, you know, we have all sorts of ways of behaving towards each other which which are unhealthy, and equally as many ways as we can which are healthy. And uh, tomorrow, I might we might go through the uh, the perfections, as they call the parami. Uh, but again, it's uh, it's recognizing that um, uh, other people are our teachers. That's one really very positive way of looking at it. So when somebody is creating uh, some negativity within us, it's pointing out where we're where we may be stuck, where we are actually. Uh, holding on to views and opinions, and um, you know it 's a case of really uh, doing that doing that moment to moment vipassana we, we see we see Vipassana as being something that we we sit and do as a practice, and that 's true that 's not a problem but to keep that to, to keep that awakenedness in us, awakenedness in us, so that when we meet somebody and they're and they're pressing buttons, you know, we're right there with this with the inner turmoil, and as it were, not to identify with it. This is the whole point, isn't it, of practicing vipassana is to disidentify with what we're experiencing. So when anger comes within me when I'm sitting and I've got a memory and some anger comes up. I, you know, I'm, I'm sort of, as it were, just gently pushing it away from me to observe it. And in so doing, I realize it's not me, not mine. But then we, in day life, we tend to forget that. And, and as soon as anger comes up, well, I'm going to be angry. To hell with it. <laughs> but the whole idea, isn't it, is to remain with this sharp awakenedness so that as soon as I feel the first stirrings of irritation, I'm right there with it, you see. Now... I can override that. See, this is the point. I can override that with goodwill. And the measure of goodwill could be just a certain openness to the person, just to actually listen to what they're saying without this immediate reaction. And I, if I'm going to identify with something, they'll let me identify with goodwill. So now here we come to another, this whole business about, about the self. The Buddha um, in his teachings, uh, isn't it's not about it's not about getting rid of the self. It's about uh, creating, first of all, a self which is beautiful, a self which is uh, feels uh, dignified, self-worthy, that has a lot of self-esteem. You see, and it's only when we feel that certainty within us. That it's begin that we can begin to go deeper and drop the idea of of what a self might be, but all his teachings, if you if you go through, is all about at this ethical level of moving away from negative states towards positive states, from darkness to light, as he would put it. There's some beings moving the other way, he says, but hopefully we're moving the right way, from <laughs> darkness to light. And so the whole training. Uh, that uh, part, of a, part of the training is the Eightfold Path, this right speech, right action, right livelihood. And what it's doing is, it's creating this, this beautiful conditioning. And when I associate with that, when I say, well, you know, I am generous, you see, uh, then uh, it's creating within me this, this sense of, of self-esteem. When I've forgiven somebody and I feel the relief that comes with that, uh, you know, I'm, I'm purifying my heart. When you're practicing Metta and you're saying, may I be safe, may I be well, uh, it doesn't matter whether we believe there's an, there's an ultimate I there or not, but all we're doing is creating these conditionings uh, which eventually build up to make us feel good about ourselves. Now, when we uh, move into that meditation, um, <clears throat> the, next, the next stage is to, is to investigate this sense of I, um, so it's it's a sort of parallel process. The the process of insight and the process of of ethical uh, purity run uh, together. You see. So if we are if we're very disturbed over something, we're going through a patch in our lives which is uh, full of anxiety and anger and all that sort of stuff. Then it's very difficult to separate from it. And even if we keep falling into these habits of getting angry and, and all that sort of stuff, at least we know that we've fallen into a place where we don't want to stay. This is the point, we don't want to stay there. Often people will get themselves into this, into this horrible place and, and they keep churning at it. I remember uh, Rob, who's our uh, treasurer, he, he, uh, he do, he's um, a solicitor helping people through divorce and whatnot. And he remembers saying to this man something along the lines of, um, you'll lose what you want, you know, like you're not going to win this case. (laughs) Uh, And and you're going to spend a lot of money, right? Um, So his whole argument was, let it be, come to an agreement and let it go. But he was too caught up in this bitterness and hatred and he was going to go for it. Even though, even though it was actually completely illogical, and that's what we, that's what we tend to do. We get ourselves into these um you know these 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 whirlpools of thought you see and and you it's impossible to step out of it for a lot of people they're just caught up in it. There was another case just recently um, on the radio there of a man who um, had been tortured by the Japanese on, uh, on, on that River Kwai business really, really badly. And his heart was just filled with hatred and, and just anger. It was there, undealt with within, the, within his heart. And his first marriage eventually broke up. And then later on in, in his perhaps late middle age, um, he's just on a train and he meets somebody um, and begins to talk to her. And this stuff begins to f- begins to just flow outward, and he, he gets in touch with all this all this goo, all this horrible stuff inside him and for some reason i, I can 't remember the details he he sees this article where this Japanese man, who was his torturer, has written an article in which he 's asking for forgiveness and whatnot, so he determines to go and meet him in Japan and give him the old oh, what for. <laughs> But as soon as the man walks in, he, and me, this 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 um, uh, Japanese man, he just goes down on his, on his knees and begs him to forgive him, and and it's like he can't do anything. He, <laughs> like the forgiveness just pours out of his heart, and they and they become good friends. So, uh, in his case, he was very lucky that this uh, the fellow who who now regrets bitterly the way he made these other human beings taught uh, you know. Um, um, suffer uh, actually had the opportunity to tell this, this victim how he felt about it now if not this man may very well have been still twisting in the little hell of his own, of his own making just unable to forgive unable to forgive so, when we uh, what our practice is teaching us that all this negativity is not me in the sense that i don 't have to do that i don 't have to indulge it i don 't have to associate with it even I can see it as just another mental state, and even if i 'm caught out by it every so often you know and I find myself um, you know murdering people and stuff like that, <laughs> even so i can i can I can then remind myself after the act you know. I, You know, you lost yourself there. There was a a loss of myself into that. And if I can bring myself out of that and re-establish this good self, you see, then at least I'm not not justifying the act. A lot of people uh, might justify anger, you know, righteous anger and all that sort of stuff. Um, But in Buddhist terms, it's very difficult to justify anger. You can you can sublimate it, you can turn your anger into doing something, but anger itself, the feeling of anger, you know, the hatred that's involved in it, as soon as you put that out, it's, it's a negativity, it's a negative force, and it'll have its effect in one way or the other, you know. even if you, Even if you get your own way, you'll have got your own way, which may be perfectly just, at the expense of friendship, see. The person might do it just out of, you know, because you've hammered them, because <laughs> they're so afraid of you. But that's hardly uh, a good reason for them to do it. So what we're trying to do at the level of self, at the level of, of me feeling I am, I am this, I am that, is moving myself towards this better place. And when I get there, uh, I find myself being more contented, uh, less caught up in these mental states and so on and so forth. And this allows my meditation to go deeper because these are, in our meditation, what we call the hindrances. They're actually stopping us from, from going deeper and seeing where the, where the initial problem lies, you see. So um, this, t- this, this uh, goodwill that we are generally spreading around all over the place at Christmas is something that we also need. It's not it's not only an outward flow; it's an inward flow towards ourselves. And one of the purposes of practicing Metta is to get that feeling of self-worth about ourselves. So, even you know, at this, uh, during this this time, uh, it's, uh, it depends what how you wish to spend tomorrow. But you might f- spend some time just reflecting and. Uh, just you know, just try to guide your thoughts towards those areas where where we where we find ourselves stuck, or where we find our, where we find uh, certain irritations, etc., etc., certain fears, anxieties, and just see them that actually they're telling us something about ourselves, the situation out there, the person out there, and uh, and and then just to find a way of uh, allowing that original fear, anger, whatever it is, to arise. Um, and as it, as it moves away, as it turns away, you see, to establish the right relationship. See? The right relationship with a situation or with a person and so on. So as we all know, this isn't, uh, this isn't easy work. You've got to keep at it. And uh, even though... Uh, Sometimes you might feel things are going worse. Uh, Sometimes it feels like that before it gets better. I'm sure you've heard that one before. So so it's a case of really seeing our lives as an ethical process. It's not just this insightful process into impermanence and whatnot. It's actually an ethical process. It's a process of correcting our relationships. And... uh, In a sense, that's looking at the third, this middle characteristic of dukkha, of of suffering. And remember, it always comes down to desire. So this desire is a specific desire. It's not all desire. The desire to meditate, the desire to be liberated, it's not this tanha. This desire is always based on uh, some wrong relationship we have, See, which is a fundamental uh, delusion about who we are, so, um, even when we turn towards uh, things like the ultimate things, like death, you know, uh, you know, the Buddha's not shy about sort of hitting nails on their heads, you know, like life is uncertain, death is certain. I mean, that's, you know, like <laughs> he keeps sort of poking you in the eye, to sort of wake you up, and it's it's being able to turn on that, you see, turn on that certainty, and looking at that fear because right there at the very fear of death, we find this self. It's the self, you see, it's this wrong relationship which is creating that, that initial, that, that deep, that deepest of all fears. So, um, just trying really to uh, make that path quite uh, clear to ourselves, that on the one side, there's the process of insight, the process of seeing things as they really are, as the Buddha said. And on the other side, it's how it manifests in our daily actions, speech, actions, and uh, livelihood. And the one has to mirror the other. And... um, the way, to, the way to liberation can come through any of those points on the Eightfold Path, um, especially those points about right speech, right action, but especially that right livelihood. Because in our actions, uh, we come across where the self is creating barriers, where the self is not, is not able to extend itself in a fluid way into a situation definitions, opinions, views, and all that sort of stuff, you see. Uh, Just as a final example of the distinction between um, uh, what you might call a barrier and a a boundary. See, boundaries are fluid. Now, using that word as a a fluid thing is this whole business about opinions and, and, and views. So, if we see an opinion as just a, a perspective on a particular situation, political, social, etc. If it's just a perspective, we're much more open to accepting that other people have different perspectives. And there's an ability there to work with it, to, to find a compromise. So in terms of uh, a self which is not so self-seeking, the word compromise not a dirty word. But as soon as you identify with your opinion, I am, See, it's very difficult to find, that, to find that bridge. And we see it constantly in places like, you know, the Middle East. See, there's no... Uh, there doesn't seem to be a way that, uh, that these two sides can, can even come close to uh, some sort of compromise, some sort of way of understanding each other and giving each other the sense of freedom they want. However, it is Christmas, and, uh, <laughs> and we have to spread a bit of goodwill... And uh, this evening in our meta, perhaps we can bring these things to mind, like the Middle East, and, uh, and send out our goodwill. Uh, just f- another final thing, uh, some, people, <laughs> some people doubt the power of prayer, you know, uh, goodwill, blessings, and that sort of stuff. But there's a woman called Caroline Miss, whom some of you might, might have heard of. And um, she tells a tale of a uh, car crash in which um, the woman dies, comes out of her body, and as she looks down the line of cars, all these people are, are swearing and getting very angry with her and, and all that sort of stuff. But there's one woman who's praying for her. And what she sees is this energy going up and then coming down upon her. Anyway, as it is, she didn't die and she goes back into the body and all that. But she remembers the number plate of this person and seeks her out and takes her a bunch of flowers. So... <laughs> so. Uh, even though we might do meta only to um, uh, you know to to help recondition our own hearts towards what is goodwill, um, i don't think we should doubt that it has some force I'm always bemused really, because as you know I, we read out these names in the morning, and occasionally somebody will say it really helped, and I, I can't really understand how it did it, <laughs> but they actually actually feel it and there was one occasion i mean it's, you know you can always if you're if you're a scientific materialist obviously it's not going to make sense to you uh, but there was one case where somebody was dying and we were offering metta and it so happened they died during that period when we were offering metta which is which i thought was extraordinary which means i suppose you could translate that as being we killed them <laughs> <laughs> But uh, I think of it more positively <laughs> as helping them uh, move on. <laughs> so anyway, I can only hope my words have been of some assistance. May you be fully liberated by uh, observing these twin, the twin parts of the path of insight and, um, and ethical uh, relationships sooner rather than later.